So I know I've referenced this before, but it works. So I'm going to talk about it again briefly. There's this song by Tom Petty called The Waiting, where he has the line in that song where he says, the waiting is the hardest part. Now, some of you might be singing the song now in your head. Those of you who don't know Tom Petty, you're probably like, why are you constantly referencing this man? Um, The thing about waiting is that it leads to anticipation, excitement. I remember as a kid, whenever my parents would have company, my brother and I would ask over and over, what time are they getting here? What time are they getting here? And my kids do the same thing. And I'm sure if you have children or if you are a child, you've done this before where you know someone's coming over and you just keep asking, well, when are they getting here? When are they getting here? But see, what happens is that when waiting persists, when it's 3.30 and the company was supposed to arrive at 3, that anticipation starts to turn into frustration. And as the hours tick away, frustration turns into weariness until we get to the point where we don't even really care if they come over or not. We become apathetic. Our text this morning digs into this idea and feeling of waiting. As we talked about last week, Advent is a season where we are reminded of who and what we are waiting for. And I praise God for the wisdom of the church calendar because as the days grow shorter and the temperatures drop, discouragement and melancholy just seem to be par for the course. I know there are people who love winter, and I used to be one of those people, but let's be honest, it's, it's kind of frustrating when your kids get home from school and there's only like an hour and a half left of daylight and you're like, well, can't they go outside and play for just a little bit longer? Like maybe five more minutes, but it's dark and that's like maybe not okay. I don't know, maybe it's fine. But I think that not only does this time of year lead to discouragement, but the daily reminder that we live in a world of darkness is really sometimes too much for us to bear. I mean, again, this week, how many things in the news are we just reminded of that show us we live in a world that is fallen, we live in a world that is sinful, and we live among the weeds, and worse, we live behind enemy lines where the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But what the words of Jesus teach us is to remain hopeful, even when it appears as though he's forgotten about us, because concerning that day and hour, no one knows. We don't know when he's coming back, but the promise and the hope that we have is that he will come again. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I'd I'd ask you to open up to Matthew 25, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13 this morning. And we're following a simple outline that's in your bulletin, and we're going to be looking at that first point, only fools rush in. And so to give a little bit of context, this passage and all of the passages that we'll be looking at over the next three weeks are found within a section of Matthew known as the Olivet Discourse. And so a quick explanation, the Olivet Discourse follows a conversation that Jesus was having with his disciples where he predicted the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. And they ask a question in Matthew 24, 3, well, when will all these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And we're not going to get too deep into Matthew 24, we're going to be looking at Matthew 25, but very quickly, Jesus spends verses 4 through 35 discussing the destruction of the temple, which actually took place in A.D. 70, when the Roman army captured Jerusalem and destroyed both the city and the temple. 
But for the rest of chapter 24 and all of 25, Jesus answers that second question about the close of the age. And he uses parables which give us an opportunity to imagine. Parables have this way of of kind of sparking something in our imagination. To imagine what the coming of the kingdom and his return will be like. And so verses 1 through 4, let's take a look. It says this, "Then Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five of them were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And so a couple of things as we look at this passage. A few observations. The passage starts with this word, then, which links us back to the previous discussion. Like I've mentioned before, these connecting words that you see in the Bible, if you're doing any Bible study at home, these are really important words. But, therefore, then, um, for, because, all of these words show connection. They show where the argument is going in the text. And, and with this word, it links us back to the previous discussion of the day and the hour. So what we know right from jump is that we are looking at a passage that talks about the close of the age, the end of the age, and then the characters are all introduced. We have the ten virgins, who most interpreters throughout the years take these ten to represent the church. It's interesting, last week when we were in Matthew 13, we were looking at a parable that talked about everyone in the world, both the good seed and the weeds. This week, we're looking at specifically these ten virgins, which most likely represent the church. And then he he introduces the bridegroom. This word bridegroom most likely is a reference to Jesus himself. It's a messianic term. And he talks about this in Matthew chapter 9. And then the emphasis of these four verses seems to be that among the young women, there are five of them who are wise and five of them who are fools. Fools who assume that their lamps will be fine and the wise who are more of it's better to be safe than sorry, bringing extra oil along the way. In the words of Pastor Lee, like a good Eagle Scout, always be prepared. And so the point, at least as we make our way through these first verses, is that there are two ways to travel, prepared and ready for any obstacle along the way or not. But while there are two types of women present among the ten, they're all going to the same place. They're all heading out to meet the bridegroom. Remember, this is a parable about the church as we make our way to the wedding feast. One commentator says it like this, the ten bridesmaids, looking quite alike outwardly, may yet be of characters vastly different in the sight of God. In other words, church membership and professions of faith do not necessarily equal salvation, but we'll talk about that in a few minutes. And so the text continues, and so does the story, verses 5 through 10, as the excitement of going to the wedding is disrupted by the tardiness of the bridegroom. It says this in verses 5 through 10, as the bridegroom was delayed... They all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. In in the original language, it's kind of like, look, everybody, he's here. Come on, quick, quick, he's coming. 
We've been in situations like this where all of a sudden what we've been waiting for is finally here. When the company arrives, my kids will run into the room. They're here. They're here. And it's like, okay, hold on. And I'm like, come on, Deanna, they're here. And, and like, we got to get out. Like, we got to actually be ready to welcome guests into our home, which if you have children, you know that that moment's always a little overwhelming, that it's time to welcome guests. And you're like, well, we're not nearly done. We're not ready for the guests. It would have been nice if they were late. But anyway, here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose. They trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will, only, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to, to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut couple things. The bridegroom was delayed. This is just like an interesting side note as I was studying. I noticed that this word came up in Exodus 32 when Moses was delayed on the mountain of God to come back down after meeting with him. The people very quickly grew weary. And, and what do we know about that story? They ran after idols. They demanded idols. It says that they fell asleep. Similar to last week, sleep is not necessarily a bad thing in this context, considering both the wise and the foolish went to sleep. And then the bridegroom finally arrives, and here is where the fools are separated from the wise. Remember, if you would have saw this group of women traveling along the way, you would not have seen any distinction among them. They all looked like they were heading to the wedding. In fact, it seems like they were invited to the wedding. But now there's a separation that takes place. The wise young women are able to light their lamps with no problem, while the fools are left with their lamps going out. On a side note, often when Deanna and I are running late prior to getting into the car, Deanna's grabbing some last-minute items, a couple of granola bars, a bottle of water. And while she's doing that, I'm visibly frustrated. I'm not very good at hiding that. But without fail... And she reminds me of this every single time. I always need a drink of water while we're in the car. I always am a little bit hungry. And so she's right. She's, she's right in getting those items. Anyway, neither here nor there. That was just me trying to just show you that I love you. <laughs> but because of the fool's lack of preparation, their last-minute trip to the supermarket meant that they missed the arrival of the bridegroom. The door was shut, keeping them from the marriage feast. And so interesting things starts to emerge here. One is, right, the wise ones who were ready, they went in with him to the marriage feast, while those who were unprepared were shut out. And, and a couple of questions just emerge as I'm thinking through this. Like, why didn't the other women share? That feels messed up, right? You have this oil, you brought extra, why don't you share? Also, the bridegroom, like, that seems a little harsh. You're shutting them out? Like, come on. You can't just, like, a couple extra minutes? They made a mistake. What about grace, right? Important thing to note here is, like, this is a parable. It's really important that we understand when we're reading parables, there is not always a one-to-one -one correlation of every single element in the parable. 
The point of this parable is not to talk about the grace of the bridegroom. The point of the parable is not to talk about the love of the other five young women. The point of the parable is to talk about what does it mean to be prepared? What does it mean to be prepared? That's what it's teaching. If we try to pull out other lessons from this parable, they might be helpful, but they're not the point that Jesus was making when he delivered this parable in the ancient world. And so we need to be careful of those things. Because we can very easily develop all sorts of theologies based on some peripheral ideas in the parable and and, and get distracted from the main point. The main point is, what does it mean to be prepared? What does it mean to be prepared? The main point is, what do I do when I'm not prepared? That's not the main point. The main point is, what does it mean to be prepared? And so while those questions are interesting to wrestle with, it's not the point of the parable. So we should very quickly kind of move along. And so the text continues, verses 11 through 13. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. Remember, the door was shut. They couldn't come in. He answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore. For you know neither the day nor the hour. That's where the rubber meets the road for us. A couple of things, right? The five other um, young women, they returned. They're banging on the door. They're hoping to be let into the marriage feast. They just went to the market. Maybe they found a store open in the middle of the night. I don't know. And they cry out, Lord, Lord, open to us, to which Jesus responds. Well, not Jesus in this particular context. This is the bridegroom. I'm getting a little ahead of myself with this interpretation. Lord, Lord, open to us, to which the bridegroom responds, truly I say to you, I do not know you. I do not know you. Now, this might remind some of us of another passage, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. It reads like this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Such an interesting passage because he says, the one who does the will of the Father, and these guys are all like, well, I did, did, did. And, and, and really what Jesus is saying, is that necessarily the will of the Father? Like, maybe you got the will of the Father wrong. Like, I get it. You did a lot of cool stuff. Don't get me wrong. We all do lots of good stuff. Is that necessarily the will of the Father? And we're going we're gonna to build on this a little bit because this might start, like, raising some questions in all of our minds. So then what are we supposed to do? Like, I thought salvation is by grace through faith, and now it says I have to do something. What is happening here? We're going to get there. The passage closes with the main point, watch therefore. For you know neither the day nor the hour. And so the obvious point of this parable is that we are called to be like the wise young girls who come to the wedding prepared. And so let's talk a little bit about this idea of preparation. Let's talk specifically about this idea that some are shut out. Some are shut out. How do I know that I'm prepared? How do I know that I'm the one who's doing the will of the Father? And what happened to salvation by grace alone through faith alone? What happened to all of these beautiful things that we've been taught throughout our entire Christian lives? Well, well, one thing 
is that, yeah, faith alone saves us, but the faith that saves is never alone. John Calvin said that. See, faith is is this, this activating agent, if you will. Faith is this extension cord that kind of connects us to a power source, namely the Holy Spirit. So when we put our trust in Christ, when we bend our knee to King Jesus and we're forgiven of our sins, we are brought into what theologians call union with Christ. We're brought into union with Christ. And when we are brought into union with Christ, the Father gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the gift of the Holy Spirit enables us to keep in step with the Spirit, to walk faithfully, as some passages put it, to walk wisely, which is what we're dealing with here, this idea of wisdom. And this is important because, yes, salvation is by grace through faith, 100%. I bend my knee to King Jesus, and I'm saved. Oh, but the Holy Spirit indwells us and enables us to walk with him. And so there's this point that I want to make that salvation leads to a changed human being. Something happens in the life of a human being when they're saved. Desires begin to change. Actions follow those desires. Again, I'm not saying we're saved by works. Please do not mishear what I am saying. We are saved by grace through faith, but it's a faith that is not alone. James talks about this, that that we're, we're justified by works, he says. It's like, whoa, James, that don't make sense. It sounds like you disagree with the rest of the Bible. He doesn't. He doesn't. His point is, is that those good works that we perform, namely loving God and loving neighbor, right? We believe here at Redeemer Fellowship that we exist so that we might share together in the life of Christ by loving God and loving neighbor. Those are the good works we're talking about, loving God and loving neighbor. It's not like don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. That's not the point. I'm not getting at legalism. I'm getting at love. I'm getting at love. And the Holy Spirit enables us to legitimately love God and love neighbor. And so our desires begin to change. What we often find in in a lot of Christian circles is we talk about this idea that that I'm a wretched sinner, right? Man, I'm just, and and we beat ourselves up, right? I'm I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm I'm the worst thing. And we get into this really like, like kind of like self-loathing sort of posture. But, but, but I'm going to submit to you that when, when we come to faith, something actually happens. Something actually happens. See, see John says in, in, in the words of Jesus that, that we're born again. Right? And, and Paul talks about how, how anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And so, and so while we might still sin, because we do, if anyone says they don't, they're a liar. John said that also. But we are changed. We become a new creation. So now our desires really are for God. And we talked about this last week, right? That that we we actually sometimes make mistakes because we love God so much. And we actually want to to, to just snuff out sin in every imaginable way possible that we end up doing doing really wretched and evil things because we love God. Like, it's weird because we, we confuse things. But my point is, is that who we are at our core are lovers of God when the Holy Spirit enters into our lives. But the flesh is still lingering at the surface. 
Right? I've said this before, right? We're, 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 we're saints, but we still speak in the accent of sinner. And I've mentioned that when my grandmother moved here from Italy some, you know, 1950, whenever it was, early 1950s, late 1940s, till the day she died, and, and my grandmother loved being an American citizen. She loved it. My grandfather was like, all right, I can take it. I, I, I like Italy, you know. But my grandmother loved it. But till the day she died, she spoke with an Italian accent. But she was American to the core. She loved her country. That's us, right? We are saints to the core, but we still speak with that accent of a sinner. It's frustrating, right? It's frustrating. I remember it being frustrating for my grandmother, trying to communicate sometimes. It's frustrating for her. We have that same frustration. So, so the point here is that, is that we're not talking about salvation by works. We're talking about grace through faith. But grace through faith changes who we actually are. It changes who we actually are. And so the obvious question as we work through this particular parable, what in the world does it mean to be prepared? Is the oil a bunch of good works we're supposed to bring with us to the table where God weighs them against our bad works? I forgot who was laughing with me. It might have been you, Scott, or, or either Chris. Someone was saying, like, last week you picked an easy parable because Jesus gave the interpretation. But this week, Jesus doesn't give the interpretation. we got to do the hard work. And so this is where a passage like this is really difficult to wrestle with. And we believe, and we believe this because the scriptures teach it, that salvation is by grace through faith. And we believe that there is nothing that will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. At the same time, there are these passages that seem to indicate that the grace of God that we receive by faith has a certain result in the lives of those who possess it. And so the big question that I've been wrestling with all week, and I wonder if it's the question that some of you are wrestling with right now, is how do I know if I'm prepared? What does assurance look like for me as a follower of Jesus? Well, turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. And I'm just going to start reading um, verses 1 through 17. It says this, My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I just love right there, just from jump. He's like, he's like I'm writing so you don't mess up, but I know you're going to mess up. But, but it's okay. Because we have, we have an advocate. His name is Jesus. He died. He made atonement for our sins. And you're forgiven. Rest in that. So, so first thing first, assurance comes from the fact that we look to the cross. We look to the cross. We rest in the fact that Jesus truly did put to death sin on the cross. And he put it to death in our lives. And so the first way we understand assurance, the first way to know whether we are among the wise or the fools is, is where do we draw our assurance from? Namely, Christ. Christ crucified on the cross. Christ risen from the dead, crushing death to pieces. That's where our assurance lies first and foremost. But he continues. And by this, verse 3, if you look with me, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. 
Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps the word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing to you, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. John makes some really specific points there. He makes a specific point. He says that in verse 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. This this commandment that God gives us, that he he calls us to, to live by, the thing that demonstrates whether or not we know him is love. It's love of God and love of neighbor. It's love of God. It's love of neighbor. Guys, we talked about this last week, too. We talked about how good seed responds to weeds. What I'm challenging us and what I'm challenging myself, do I actually love the way God has commanded me to love? Has the good news of Jesus so raptured me in such a way that I genuinely love those who hate me? That I genuinely love my enemies. And if, and if we want a, a, like a like sort of a quick sort of understanding of what this Christian life ought to look like, we need to go to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, where he lays it all out for us. Not quick. I mean, you can read it quick, but it's a lifetime to master. I was struck by this even this past week. I was, I was talking with Deanna. There were a couple of things that happened where I actually found myself there were certain events that took place, certain people in my life that, that I, I may, I'm not particularly fond of, to, to make it nice. And, and something happened to them where they, they got what was coming to them. They're nothing like major, no one like was killed or anything like that, but, but they got what was coming to them. And there was this little spark of like, yeah, good. Good, they deserve it. And then I was studying. And I was like, oh man, that's not a good response that's not a good response. I I should never be joyful when something bad happens to somebody, even if it seems like they deserve it. 
And I was, I was like checked a little bit. I was like, okay, God, like I'm about to preach on love. I'm about to go through this text. I'm going to talk about what it means to be prepared, what it means to be wise. And, and here I am, and, and, and I'm, I'm walking with the fools. I'm walking with the fools. Again, we are saved by grace through faith. But our works prove our faith. That's what James says. And those works are works of love. They're works of love. I want to go to another passage in um, 2 Peter chapter 1. And, and this is something that I'm going to have you guys wrestle with in your community groups this week. But I just want to read through the passage. Um, 2 Peter chapter 1. If you're already in, um, in 1 John, you just flip back a page and you're in 2 Peter. In verses 1 through 11, it says this, chapter 1. Here we go. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. All right? So, so put your finger on that word faith, right? You don't have to do it, but in your mind. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that, again, those words are important, so that, that's another one of those linking words, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. That's a conversation that we don't have time for right now. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. You see it there? There's that word, shows up again with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with, what do you see there? With love. See, Peter bookends that whole section with faith and love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to what? To make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. So what is Peter saying? Is Peter saying you're saved by works? No, he's not. He's saying, but you know how you know you're one of Christ's? If you walk in love. And love flows from faith. And so we are saved by grace through faith. But if we are wise, we will walk to the wedding feast, which all of us are en route to. We will walk to that wedding feast with love and mercy and tenderness and care for those we come in contact. For every single one of us, especially the household of the faith. Because you know what I've learned? Because Paul says that in Galatians. He says, he says basically, love everybody, but especially you know, your brothers and sisters in Christ. But you know what I've learned throughout my time as being a Christian? Is that we are really good at shooting one another. And, and I know we laugh, we chuckle, because many of us have probably been on the receiving end of those bullets. Or many of us, all of us, have held that gun in our hands. Oh, but, but, but we're being challenged by the word of God right now. That cannot be how we posture ourselves. That cannot be how we live this life. 
regardless of what we believe about about social issues, politics, whatever the case may be, any of those items, they all bow in submission to King Jesus. They have to. They have to. That's how we know we belong to him. I'm not saying that if we don't do these things, we're not Christians. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that our assurance comes from wisdom, and wisdom are these things, how we live our lives. The Sermon on the Mount is a wisdom document. It's a wisdom document. It teaches us how to live in God's kingdom so that we might flourish. And that's what we're being called to practice. And the things in that document and the things we read here in 2 Peter and the things we read in 1 John and, and the way we're called to live, they run so counter to everything we're taught by this world. To everything we're taught by this world. But remember, when we went through the Sermon on the Mount, we live in an upside-down kingdom. That's so important. Where the world teaches us to hate, God calls us to love. Where the world teaches us about vengeance, God says turn the other cheek. That's hard. That's hard because like I experienced this week, we kind of like it when our enemies get what's coming to them. We love justice. And to love justice is not wrong but we have a way of taking good things and, and, kind of, and kind of draping them in sin and draping them in our own sort of filth that we still struggle with. And we got to fight that. We got to fight that because, because like the Bible says, what are we? We are what? We're new creations. We're, we're not old anymore. We're new. We're new. Do we believe that we're new creations? That's the thing we have to keep wrestling with. Do we believe that we are saints? See, we've gotten so used to just heaping condemnation on ourselves. I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. Okay, I get it. I get it. But we are saints. Indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Called by the Father in union with Christ. Adopted children of God. Redeemer, that is, that is good, good news. That is good, good news. And so as we make our way to the wedding feast, as we walk in this life, as we share together in the life of Christ, loving God and loving neighbor, we are to walk wisely and be prepared. The oil for our lamps is the love that we have for both God and neighbor. And that love manifests itself through tangible obedience. And the scriptures are filled with examples of how to do it. I mean, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel, is that when we fumble the ball, when we give into our flesh, when we forget who we are, I've shared this with you before. I constantly talk to my children and I tell them, you need to remember who you belong to. You are a child of God. And sometimes when I'm, when I'm disciplining them, I'll even say to, I'll even say to Joshua. Joshua's my, my five-year-old. He's the one that runs around. He's, he's, you know, he's, he's out. He's crazy. He's five. He's supposed to be. 
And, and sometimes I say to him when he's, when he's not maybe behaving kindly, I say, I say, hey, buddy, like, you're not acting like Joshua. You're not acting like Joshua. That, you're acting like some other kid right now. Like, you're a kind boy. You're a boy who loves God. You're a boy who loves mommy and daddy. You're not acting like that boy. Why are you acting like a different boy? And he laughs. But I, I want to remind them that, that there is an identity that they possess. And when we live outside of that identity, we're actually, we're, we're, we're play acting. We're putting on a mask. We're pretending to be something we're not. Redeemer fellowship. We are born again children of God. You, you, you got to believe it. And you got to believe that, that the wretchedness that you once possessed is being cleansed by the Holy Spirit. And when he's teaching us how to walk with him, how to keep in step with him. And so we need to practice these things, those, those things in 2 Peter, those things in 1 John. We need to practice them and we prepare ourselves so that when we get to the wedding feast, our, our, our lamps are fully lit and we have a whole supply of oil because, because he's coming back. We don't know when he's coming back. It says he's delayed. It says he's delayed. And so what do we have to do so we don't become like, like the children waiting for company to come over and it's 3.30, 4.30, 5.30 and they're supposed to get here at 3? What do we do so that we do not grow frustrated, so that we do not grow weary, so that we do not grow apathetic? We need to continue practicing these good works. We need to continue fellowshipping with one another. We need to continue encouraging one another. We need to continue repenting of sin when it happens because the less we repent of sin, the less we confess it, the more the more apt we are to do it again. But that's how we prepare ourselves. Because it's, it's delayed, guys. We don't know when he's coming. We don't know. And if someone tells you they know, they're lying. They're lying. They don't know. And so we live in this confusing in-between where we pursue Christ, where we love God, we love neighbor, we practice these good works, we, we just wrestle with our faith, we wrestle with the scriptures, we, we confess sin, we do these things. And so as we continue watching and waiting for the coming of our Lord, let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season, perhaps at midnight, or some other unexpected hour, we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Love for God and neighbor is the road of preparation. It's how we walk wisely. We are saved by grace through faith. We're all invited to the wedding. We're all on our way. Being prepared means that that grace through faith is a faith that is not alone. It's accompanied by love and mercy and care and tenderness. This is what it means to walk with Jesus. It's good news. It's good news. My prayer is that this morning wasn't something that, that you're going to go home now and, and, and start wondering, am I a Christian? No, I, I want you to go home and, and I want you to rest in the goodness of our Lord. I want you to rest in his forgiveness, but I want you to examine yourself too. Examine yourself as Paul instructs us to do. Carve that stuff out of our lives, that bitterness, that judgmentalism, that hatred that we have for, for whoever them is in our lives. We all have an us and them. Who are they? How do you posture yourselves toward them?
Is it with love or is it with hate? Because the Bible says if we hate our brother, then, then the light of God is not in us. That's good news, Redeemer. Let's go to the Lord. Father in heaven, Lord, we love you so much. And we are so grateful for your grace, for your forgiveness, for your mercy that you lavish upon us, Lord. I mean, you lavish it upon us. Sometimes it's confusing how much grace you extend to us. Because we know that we're undeserving of it. But Father, we are so grateful that you have called us into your family. You've adopted us. We are your sons and we are your daughters. And Father, one day we will see you face to face. In the meantime, Lord, help us to be prepared as you call us to be wise and not fools, Lord God. Help us to walk in wisdom. Help us to walk in love and in faith so that the world might catch a glimpse of what you are like, Lord. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.